Welcome to Manage This, the podcast by project managers for project managers. We are so proud and so excited to mark our 100th episode. Everybody's here to celebrate. Andy Crow and Bill Yates, producer Wendy Grounds, engineer Andy Leeds, and we're so glad you have joined us for the celebration too, but also for joining us and supporting us in our Manage This journey over the past several years. Andy, I'm gonna ask you, go back in time, tell us the story behind the podcast. What was your vision for the podcast then, and, and has that changed over the year? Well, Nick, that's an interesting question. You know, if you go back in time, I used to be on the project management speaking circuit quite a lot. And one of the things that always happened is people would come up and say, I've been listening to these CDs. We used to produce CDs. Now they're Mm -hmm. digital downloads. But Bill Yates and Lewis Alderman and I were on there and people would come up and say, you know what? I've been driving around in the car. I've been listening to that. One one person said that when their child misbehaved in the car, that they would uh, they would actually make them listen to 30 minutes of that. Oh, cruel and unusual punishment. It was a really they funny interchange. They called on that one. One of the things that I figured out during that series of conversations, though, is people would always come up afterward, and they didn't want to talk about what I had spoken on that evening <laughs> at the project management meeting. They wanted to talk about the audio uh, series that we did. And I told Bill, I said, you know, there's a few things. Number one... Project management is a really difficult job for a lot of people because you're affecting change and Mm. the world resists change. Mm. So you have people trying to create something that doesn't exist to make something different. And this gives us a chance just to have a conversation with people. Every couple of weeks, we get a chance to talk. And it is. It is a conversation. I like to think of it that way. You know, we get feedback from listeners and we try and incorporate that into where we're going. But that was the whole goal is just to engage people and part of it to say, look, we know it's a tough job. There are easier ways to make a living than being a project manager. And at the same time, people who do that for a living, a lot of times it's more of a calling than a profession. It's something that you you know, you can't imagine doing anything else. It's a chance for us to engage with people. And that's the whole goal. You know, we don't monetize this podcast. We don't sell ads. We don't ask for donations. We're doing it because we love this profession too. It's a way for us to connect with our tribe. When I think about some of the podcasts that have meant the most to me, it's when people are going through some of the same struggles that I had Mm -hmm. as a project manager. Nick, I haven't really looked at the map, but I know we've had I think just about all the continents, we've had guests from all over, you know, Australia. We had Colin, I think he joined us like 11 p.m. his time. Oh, man. It was something extreme, I know, from uh, the U.K. and from other places. So it's so interesting to hear perspectives from all different industries and all different locations and and the struggles that they have. We still, I think, probably are missing Antarctica, but I bet you, (laughs) I bet you, (laughs) as a result, there is someone out there. I guarantee there's a researcher. If they've got good internet, we'll make it happen. And as the outsider, you know, in this bunch, you know, not being a project manager. You're not a project manager? uh, Well, you know, I've learned something from this uh, (laughs) podcast. Not enough to pass the PMP exam. Uh, I'll have to rely on your book for that. But uh, the things that I've learned, you know, go so far beyond the uh, language and the acronyms, you know, WBS, CAPM, Agile, Scrum, Kanban boards, Frankly, I'm still not sure what those last two are hey, you're, about. You're talking and, a good game, though. Pal. That's it. Yeah, you're, you're selling the sizzle. But 
as I mentioned, it's such a big field, but it's also inspired me in my professional life, in, in my personal life, recognizing that so much of what I do really is kind of project management. You know, my wife and I just finished one of the biggest projects of our life. We've spent months trying to get a house ready to sell, getting the house on the market, negotiating with buyers, coordinating a move. You know, that was a big project. And the inspiration that I've gotten, not just from you guys, but also from our guests, I think actually helped us be more of a success in that project than we would have otherwise. <laughs> Nick, tell us more about this move. This is a pivot point for us with Manage This. What exactly are you guys doing? Where are you headed? Well, we have been living in the Atlanta metropolitan area for the last 20 years. I've been working at the Weather Channel as an on-camera meteorologist. I've been here for the last few years working with you guys. The time has come for us to make a transition into a new season of our life. Our grandkids live up in the Nashville area, so our plan is to get closer to them. My son and daughter-in-law have three kids and soon to be a fourth one because they're adopting a deaf child from China, and we want to be part of that. We want to be, you know, a bigger part of the kids growing up. And so the time has come, I think, to say goodbye to television, to broadcasting, and, um, and just be a part of their lives more. This is going to be a wonderful chapter. I'm so excited for you guys and proud of the move you guys are making. It's not a selfish move at all. We're going to miss you here and manage this. Very much. Well, I appreciate that. Can I just say, what an education, you know, this has been. And it's been a privilege to be associated with, with such an organization that's committed to excellence, committed to helping others be the best they can be. And that means a lot to me to be part of that. You folks are givers. As you mentioned, you know, this podcast isn't sponsored. You give of your time, energy, your talents to raise others up. And so I really appreciate that. And I can see that in how you treat one another and how you treat our guests here on the program. It's been personally gratifying to me to be a part of this great organization. Thank you, Nick. Uh, I really appreciate that. You know, a lot of times at a university, they will confer upon someone an honorary degree. And so, Nick, by all the powers vested in me, <laughs> I hereby name you an honorary project manager. Oh, my and goodness. So now you are. That's it. You are a project manager. You're one of the tribe. And so uh, <laughs> it goes on the resume today. That's I, I, I <laughs> We're going to miss you, Nick. Thank you for everything. Nick, it's been fascinating for me just to see what's resonated with you. We're going to take a look back at some of those podcasts that maybe stood out more to you, some of the guests or some of the topics that we had. It's hard to really talk about which ones stick in your mind because you know, you go back and you look at some of these topics, and we have had some amazing guests. You know, we talked about Tabitha, who had a star named after her, the most <laughs> mysterious star in the universe. We uh, went down below the seas and uh, talked about underwater vehicles with Oceaneering International, wildfires in California, cataloging space debris, saving rhinos. We uh, went in depth in managing the Fukushima disaster. We even talked about managing a major motion picture with the Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, with Pez. So yeah. there's been a lot of fun stuff, but there's also been a lot of practical stuff as well. 
We talked about negotiation techniques. We talked about performance reviews, risk management. We dealt with agile a lot, you know, answering the question, is agile right for me? We talked about changes in the PMP exam. We answered listeners' questions. We talked about using the right software to get the job done. Conflict management, all very practical things. So, so many episodes dealt with such a variety. You know, I came into this podcast kind of green, not really knowing even what project management was, but realizing that it is all of these things that we talked about yeah. and much more. I think one of the first ones that we'll go to in detail is perhaps the most practical advice we could give to project managers that we've shared, and it's how to run a meeting effectively. <laughs> this was a great one, you know, with Rich Maltzman. This was episode 77. I think this is a good time, too, to kind of turn it over. Let's go back and let's replay some of Rich's comments. We surveyed hundreds of students at Boston University in our project management classes because we were seeing this. I'd walk through the room and I would see that their screens are not, in fact, on PMI's website. They're <laughs> selecting down jackets or <laughs> shoes on Amazon.com unabashedly. And so when we asked the students, would you be in favor of a ground rule that says if you need to use a laptop for translation, because we have a lot of international students, or for note-taking, that's fine. We're going to seat you towards the front of the room. If not, we want the laptop closed and your smartphones off. We'll give you plenty of breaks. Right? You, you set the ground rules and the expectations so they're not saying, oh, I, I can't wait to order this jacket or dress or shoe. <laughs> yep. But the interesting thing was 90% plus of the students, and these include the ones who are using the, the laptops, and I know them by name, they would say, yes, I agree with this. Please. My own laptop was distracting me. My neighbor's laptop was distracting yeah. me. In fact, my neighbor would be online and that would remind me, yeah, I need a new jacket. Yeah. Yeah. And seriously, they, would, they were actually almost begging us to take these away. Just so, almost like an addict would say, yeah, you know, get this fattening food away from me. Great stuff there. You know, the fact that he actually set those ground rules and the students actually thanked him. Yeah, they appreciated afterwards. it. Yeah. yeah. Well, another episode that uh, really stuck out in my mind, Bill, was episode 64. This was uh, Wayne Termel talking about virtual teams. Are you in a long-distance relationship? <laughs> and this is something that a lot of project managers deal with. It is. It's a common challenge for project managers. More and more these days, we have teams that are either completely remote or we have members of the team that are remote. Yeah. The advantage is, of course, that you're not bound by geography. You know, but also nothing beats having the whole team together. You know, you can bounce things off of one another. And sometimes there are even hybrid teams where folks will work together as a team face to face and then sometimes often doing their own thing. Let's listen to some of what Wayne told us about leading remotely. You know, you're more likely to find pandas mating in the wild than a project manager <laughs> that has all their people in one place anymore. <laughs> So this is now a fundamental skill, right, that we need mm -hmm. to get our mitts around. On one level, not much has changed. I mean, if you look at the job of the PM, what's the job, right? We need to help figure out scope. We need to assign resources. We need to coach periodically. We need all the stuff that we need to do. Nothing's changed. I mean, Peter Drucker said the greatest project job of all time was building the pyramids, and we've just been trying to live up to that ever since. <laughs> right. The difference, of course, is the guy who built the pyramids was at the pyramids. He wasn't trying to flog people by email. So <laughs> if we think about what we have to do, in many ways, it's not that different. What has changed radically is how we do it. 
we're now forced to communicate through technology, which fundamentally changes the way people interact. It changes the human dynamic. And I know a lot of PMs get real nervous when we talk about human dynamic, mm -hmm. right? Because it's all about process. But the fact of the matter is that communicating through technology is radically different than the way we were born and raised to communicate. And some people adapt naturally, and others need to be very mindful of how we do that. And Wayne also had some great advice on what communication is actually supposed to impart. Let's listen in to what he had to say. So it's really important that you stop and think about what is the purpose of the communication here? You know, am I giving them brand new information and they're probably going to have some reaction to that? It's good news, it's bad news, whatever. Maybe the email isn't the best way to do that. Right. You know, maybe I'll hold that until we're on the conference call or we're on the web meeting and we can get a reaction at that time. And I can see who's who really hates this and who gets it and who's confused. It's really what's the purpose of the communication and then what's the best way to communicate that that we can achieve given the circumstances that we're in. You know, Nick, one of the things that Wayne said was, and I'm going to quote him, maybe the email isn't the best way to do that. Mm. That really hit home with me. I, I was reminded of a, a speaker, Juliet Funt. She's written a book on this topic and she talks about 2D versus 3D communication. And it's something that, I, that I've struggled with myself and I see other project managers struggle with it and is picking the right communication method based on the message that we're giving. Juliet's point is if I have 2D information, like, you know, here's when we're going to fly out. Here's when we're going to be at the customer's site. This is the type of laptop I need to order. So it's kind of, you know, this factual data. Then, okay, email's fine for that. But if it's a little trickier, if it's, okay, we're going to have to delay the delivery you may not want to send an email to the customer about that. You may want to actually have a conversation, yes, yes, you know, yes. uh, how delayed, you know, what are you talking about? What's happened? Did a risk occur? So Juliet's point is we need to think about our communication as either 2D or 3D. If it's three-dimensional, then the stakes are higher. And to Wayne's point, an email may not be appropriate then. Yes. So yes. then we need to have that face-to-face -face conversation. And it's also important to recognize that people on your team are going to have different work styles and, sure. and different methods. They just, you know, do it differently. Sure. And even generationally, we need to be aware of this too. And we had our own podcast about that in episode 88. Crystal Kadakia talked about building a cross-generational workplace. Crystal's the author of the book, The Millennial Myth, and she's worked with us to develop some online content that we're really proud of. One of the things that she says that really jumps out to me is we have to be comfortable and transparent with who we are. Mm -hmm. So I've got to be comfortable with who I am and then encourage others on the team to do the same. They're going to look to us as leaders and we need to model the right behavior. Yeah, great point. And sometimes we look at folks in different generations and what we see isn't really what's going on. You know, we think, oh, that person's lazy. But mm -hmm. In actuality, Crystal says they're probably just looking for ways to maximize their potential, and it's not always clear how to do that. Let's listen into what she says. So communication is a big part of it. Mm -hmm. I think when you think about putting in the time and routine mm -hmm. tasks versus fulfilling tasks, understanding the why behind, hey, what are you going to get out of this routine task other than, oh, no, you've just got to put in the time. 
Well, putting in the time is not maximizing that person's potential. And guess what? In this day and age, things are moving so quickly. If you have employees, if you have team members who are just putting in the time, you should be more worried about them. Mm -hmm. Right. Because you have complacency. Mm -hmm. But if you've got someone who's trying to maximize their potential, don't defuse it, right? Try to figure out how you can find other uses for their strengths or have them partner with you on it. Tell them, hey, here's the big scope of this project. If you've got other strengths that can contribute to this, I'm open to it. You know, I'm not going to do the work to figure out where you fit into the scope, but I'll tell you the scope. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a lot of times managers think they need to have all the answers and they don't. If a person's motivated enough, if they want to bring their whole self to work and all of these newfangled concepts we're hearing about, we'll put some of that accountability on them to do it. But it's your job to transparently share. Here is the scope of the project. Here's why we're doing what we're doing. Hey, if we don't do these routine tasks, this is what's at risk. And if you don't explain that big transparent picture, you're living back in the industrial age where everything was just on a need to know basis. Yeah, right. Okay, we're in a digital age. Mm-hmm. Everything is transparent online. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If exactly. you're not providing that transparency today, it doesn't matter how things used to be because mm-hmm. we don't live in that world. People expect to know the big picture. Yeah. And if they don't know it, you don't trust them. And why would they want to work for you if you don't trust them? You know, Nick, Crystal just, man, so many of the things she said resonated with me. And I really appreciate her saying that managers don't always have all the answers because I certainly don't. And sometimes people that I work for didn't either. Uh, But I I really appreciate her big idea there, which is if you want to impact the culture, then be a part of that culture, right? No matter whether I'm a manager or a team member or support on the support team, we all contribute to the culture. So it starts right there at the grassroots. Don't look up to leadership and say, you got to set the course for me. I need to be proactive and just create the kind of environment that I want to be a part of and be working in. That's really what made Crystal's podcast memorable. Just a great one. And another great one, and one of your favorites too, I know, Bill, was Thor, Joel (laughs) Neeb. Boy, he came in here and just rocked the place. Yeah, you know, you're an F-15 pilot and uh, you've got the credentials that Joel does, and the personal story that he does as well. There's just so much to learn from this guy and his organization. So I really appreciate the time we were able to spend with him. Yeah. You know, he talked about the importance of paring down all the complicated components to managing a squadron of fighter jets, just to the essentials. And he says, we need to do that in managing projects. Not that we ignore everything else, but what are the essential few components and when do we look at certain components? We need to know where we are in a project. One of the things that I've continued to reference in uh, classes and, and other talks that I've given was Joel's point about when you're in the cockpit, you've got 350 different dials, these <laughs> meters or these levers that are reading off important information to you. And you've got to distill and know what are the most essential. You know, Neil Witten talks about managing to your top three priorities. And again, Joel was saying, you can't look at all 300, 350 dials. You're going to be overwhelmed. You've got to know what are the top 10, top five, maybe the three that you really need to focus on and spend most of your attention on. One thing that Joel talked about that really hit home with me was the importance of integrity. And I think some of his words on that subject are worth taking a listen to. Everybody talks about integrity. I mean, nobody says we're going to lie and steal and cheat. So integrity is, is a word that means something and, and that everybody aspires to. I think in our universe, 
and as a fighter pilot, it was not only an aspiration, it was just the minimum threshold. Meaning if you didn't have your integrity, right. there was nothing else we could really do with that. It's your foundation. Exactly. Yeah. It's a guiding principle. It's what you build everything off of. So it's not the destination. It's really the starting point for everything that's going to take place after that. Mm. Not only is it not worth sacrificing, the biggest test is when you are forced to sacrificing, let's say a business metric mm. to preserve your integrity. And I've seen that a couple times where we had the opportunity. It was a gray zone. It wasn't even really misleading a client if we were to give them all the information and we could have gotten away with it and, and rationalized it in our heads. But we made the decision that we may even forfeit this revenue opportunity, forfeit this client, this mm. support. But it's so important for us to maintain our integrity that this is the testing point. Everybody says they want right. to have integrity. But right now is when we're actually being measured and watched. And this is what we'll be remembered by. To our credit, we hadn't lost those, didn't lose those clients, but I was willing to do that in order to preserve the integrity. Yeah, Thor, you just hit on something important, is that integrity becomes most important in those gray areas. Yes. Mm-hmm. Because it's the clear black and white areas, people are going to go one way or the other, and it's, it should be an easy decision. It's not always, but it should be. But it's those gray areas where you could probably just move right on without, you know, without stopping here, and you have to stop, you have to enter into a difficult conversation, you have to have a critical conversation with somebody. So that's a great point. That's exactly right. Nick, one of the things that Joel shared with us was he talked about a pilot debrief, you know, after a mission yes. and kind of goes along with integrity and trust. The team, he said, they all recognize the importance of being transparent with each other. Yeah. So they had this, this way of debriefing where they would take the rank off the shoulder, put it in a box so that everybody was equal. And then the leader went first and said, here are the things that I screwed up on the last mission and really set the stage that way for transparency and for accountability. I love that. I love his advice to leaders in this. That was one of the things that we asked Joel too, was just, you know, okay, for those project managers that are out there that want to grow that leadership muscle, what advice do you have for them? Let's listen into his response. The biggest advice I would give to you is try and fail. There's nothing magic about the Air Force Academy. (laughs) I didn't go to the Air Force Academy and they didn't, you know, open up a special book that says, here's how you act like a leader. So I failed plenty of times and we could make five podcasts on all the things that I attempted to do and didn't work out well. But here's the point. We debrief that, we iterate, we pivot, we make an adjustment, and then we get better. We know in the military that elite leaders are not born. You know, contrary to public belief, the patents and the Eisenhowers of the world, that we're not just born with these traits and, and that they just live their lives as leaders the entire time. They made plenty of mistakes. Mm. They're deliberately created, but they're intentionally created. You can't do it through the school of hard knocks. You've got to have a deliberate approach to how you're developing both yourself and your team along the way. Great stuff from Joel. Thor, the Norse god of project <laughs> management. I love that episode. And Bill, there was another one where, I mean, we had the room full here. We had Bill Darden and Matt Dale in the studio here from the Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta. What a project that was. 71,000 seats, 190 suites, a budget of $1.5 billion. Mm. And of course, we know it hosted the 2019 Super Bowl. Such a big project. Most of our listeners probably will not be working on a project of that scope. But I think it gave us some good examples of what we can do even on smaller projects. Yeah, Bill made some great points just about that. You know, he kind of chuckled, like you said. He said every project that he's managed, whether it's $1.5 billion or much, much smaller, it still boils down to the basics. And he walked through those building blocks with us. Let's reflect back on those. 
I will tell you what might be of interest to a lot of project managers is a gentleman who taught me this business early on in my mid-20s to late-20s. I probably send him four or five notes a year thanking him for the building blocks that he gave me on core project management, budget, schedule, quality, and the one that I think got left out 20, 30 years ago that now is at the forefront is safety. Hmm. That used to be something that people you know, paid lip service to. Now it's the first thing that we talk about, and the other three you know, come along with it. But those four form the legs of the stool that, frankly, every project is built on. And Matt Dale, of course, in the studio with us too. One of the things he talked about, I think, was something very practical for all project managers, and that was dealing with stress. Yes. Let's listen in on how he handled the stress. I think I came with uh, with no gray hairs in my head, and now I'm about 25%. So, <laughs> you know, it's actually something I wanted to mention in terms of the lessons I learned. Taking ownership in your work as a project manager is such an important part to making a successful project. And by having ownership in everything you touched, we as a team, you didn't want it to fail. And whether you were losing sleep over it or you worked late on it, you had so much pride in it that you may have been working hard, but there was so much gratification that came from it. But you also knew a five-year project, or five-plus, but I, I've almost— Eight years for me, yeah, almost. Five years, really, since the design team came on board and the contractor came on board and, and we got to the finish line. When you started to see that light at the end of the tunnel and what was going to be enjoyed by the community and the fans, it made it 100% worth it, mm-hmm. and it pulled that stress back. Some great advice for all project managers from Matt there. And another guy that we had in the studio here had some great advice for all project managers, too, when it dealt with cybersecurity. Don Hunt on episode 84 came in. You know, he's a former global head of fraud and cybercrime analytics for one of the largest digital payments processors in the world. And he had some real practical advice for all of us. Yeah, Don shared such practical advice, even, you know, how can project managers safely share files with customers or external resources, phishing schemes. But yeah, the key word, it's awareness. Mm -hmm. You know, probably the biggest takeaway for me with Don's comments was nothing safe, right? Yeah, yeah. You have to continue to raise awareness with your team and at your organization. Don shares some creative ways to challenge the team to raise awareness. Let's listen in. It all goes back to kind of creating a culture of awareness okay. within the business. So too many times companies will have once a year cybersecurity training. And it consists of a PowerPoint that you can watch on your own whenever and you can just speed through it. A lot of times, not even paying attention to it because you just want to get through it. And then you have some kind of authentication that you watched it or the video or maybe there's a quiz that you can take over and over and over again (laughs) until you figure out the right answer. (laughs) So you're not really learning. What we've found is if you do cyber training, if you truly do cybersecurity training, for instance, phishing or ransomware, which is really where I hone in on, and you talk to people about this is how I fished you. And you actually fish them or mm-hmm. you hit them with ransomware and you send them to a landing page that had this been real, you'd have been, this have been a lot worse, whatever, right. you can make the message however you want. But I would strongly recommend that you show people how it happened. Okay. And it's not because they get smarter, maybe they do. 
people are just naturally curious. No, I'm with yeah. People They're learn like, that way. Like, wow, yeah. how did you you did that to me? Oh my god! And then maybe kind of own it. Yep. Mm-hmm. Right. And then give them little short quizzes and hit them every now and then with it. Or, you know, maybe do a, hey, we've got a $100 gift card for the first person who spots the flaw in this email, Mm -hmm. right? Those types of things. Continue that culture of awareness. And Mm -hmm. I don't mean put these signs of some person climbing a mountain and say, you can do it. Nobody can watch it, those, right? Right. I'm talking about really getting into their, you know, Um, their space. Because at the end of the day, it's not their space, it's yours. They've invaded yours, mm. right? That's they are employees point. of your company. Yeah. And if we all take ownership of that, that makes it so much harder. Yeah, you know, sometimes I guess you do have to just get scared before you <laughs> act. And that's what Don was talking about. And just some real good advice about watching where you click on the internet, watching out for public Wi-Fi, mm. and, you know, taking advantage of tools out there to help you be more secure. There was another episode, Bill, that really stuck out to me. That was episode 57 with Mike Goss, the ups and downs from elevators to aircraft. And, mm. and he had a great, great Let's see what you did with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he worked for the U.S. Air Force during the Vietnam era. And one of the things he shared was about how he fixed a problem on the F-4s flying in Asia under humid conditions. Let's hear from him about what happened with that. I spent four years in the Air Force at the height of the Vietnam War. In 1968 and 1969, I was stationed at a delightful place called Udorn Royal Thai Air Force Base in northern Thailand. And my job was to repair the inertial navigation system aboard the F-4 fighter bomber. And my job was every day I got several projects on my shift. And the projects were, this aircraft is down. The navigation computer does not work. We have no idea why, but it doesn't work. Go fix it because we need to turn that aircraft right back around and put it back in the sky. So I was part of a team of people who would be dispatched. We'd get a job ticket. That perhaps was our charter. We would go to the aircraft, troubleshoot it based on our knowledge. If we weren't subject matter experts on this, we had no business being out there. Hmm. We would pull in the appropriate components because this was five black boxes in the front seat and the back seat, bring the offending computer into the shop, fix it, put it back on the aircraft, run an operational check, sign it off and let it go. One time as it's eight o'clock in the morning, I'm ready to go off shift. Someone from the autopilot shop came over and they said, would you help me? Nobody will help me. We have this intermittent problem between autopilot and inertial nav and I can't get anybody to help me. Everybody wants to go home. And I said, well, this is not really my home. It is for a year, but let's go fix it. (laughs) And some of my cohorts said, ah, turn it over to day shift. And I said, no, this guy's in trouble. I'm going to go help him fix it, whatever it is. We worked almost another shift. We didn't get done until the afternoon, (laughs) but it was well worth it because we found a problem that affected every F-4 flying in Asia, and it was a corrosion problem. There was an electrical connector behind the back seat. You had to go fishing for it. And when you unplugged it, you would find two or three wires had corrosion on them. Hmm. And that made the signal through those wires intermittent. So we troubleshot it, found the root cause, found the corrective action, had the electricians replace the plug, And then we wrote it up. Well, it turns out this is happening with every F-4 flying in humid conditions. As a result of what I turned in on the corrective action, 
every F4 that came in for depot level maintenance always had that complete plug and assembly, wiring assembly replaced. It kept accidents from happening. It kept more planes in the air. And I was awarded the Air Force Commendation Medal for it. Wow. That was a project. Many of Mike's comments really hit home with me because he talked about the fact that many of us are doing project management without even knowing it. Right. You know, I'm in the midst of planning a wedding for my daughter. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're dealing with deadlines and with budget and planning. And it is a project. I realize that I am a project manager. That's right. That's <laughs> right. And you mentioned budget. So budget's hitting home for you. You've got a daughter. Budget, budget, budget for that wedding. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're getting close to that max on the budget here. I'm glad we set a limit, let me tell you. Yeah. But, you know, Mike and Andy talked about this a little bit, not my daughter's wedding, but they had an interesting <laughs> conversation about project management, just the fundamentals, realizing that we're all doing projects all the while without calling it project management. Let's hear what they had to say. If you are driven to accomplish something, then you are, in your mind, you're formulating a project plan. Mm. You may not use formal terms to do it. When you do receive project management education, you have many epiphanies. You say, oh, I do that. Is that what that's called? And that happens a lot. Mike, I was managing a project and didn't know that's what I was doing right around 1990. And my boss asked me for a project plan. And so I put together something, and I didn't know what I was doing, but I did the best I could come up with. And he took me aside and very kindly but very directly said, I want to show you what your colleague over here, Tom, does when I ask him for a project plan. Here's what I get. And he pulled out a binder, and I was shocked and just saw, okay, there's... <laughs> There is another way to do this. That was kind of the start of the journey for me. I didn't realize my title at that point in time was not project manager. It would be soon, but it wasn't at that point. But I was doing project management. I just wasn't doing it well. So a lot of the things that I learned came from my dad who worked at Lockheed. My dad had his own philosophy about a lot of this stuff that definitely soaked into the way I thought. Here's what it did. It gave me pegs to hang these things on later so that later as I would learn things, I had a framework sort of already sketched out in light pencil that made sense. It wasn't that I really learned project management through that as much as it just gave me some really useful pegs to hang these things on. The thing that made my projects better was that structure or framework that you just described. When I transitioned from making it up every single time, <laughs> reinventing the wheel every single time, to moving over to, I have a process. The process works. Oh. It even has a couple of places where I look around and say, is this thing on fire or are right. we okay? And you find, I mean, one of the things that we preach around here day and night is that superior processes yield superior outcomes over time. Yes. Yes, they do. When you move from making it up as you go along to processes and refining them, then you get what I think you just described as superior processes. You're up there and your chances of successful projects just went through the roof. Just some great stuff from Mike Goss on that episode. There was another episode, Bill, actually two of them, episodes 37 and 38, where we talked with Steve Nedvedic from Chick-fil-A. And, you know, what a company this is, you know, from 1946, from the very beginning to now having more than 2,000 restaurants 
he was just a great example and gave us some great examples of where to go with project management. Yeah, and Steve has been a key part of the innovation team at Chick-fil-A for a number of years. And Steve and I have had a, a really fun time talking through the years about the marriage of innovation and project management. Innovators, you know, they're looking for new, they're kind of pushing the envelope, looking mm-hmm, mm-hmm. not just for continuous improvement, but what's the new thing? How, what's the new way to do something? How can we innovate? And then the project manager many times is kind of left with, okay, now I've got to make this happen. How do I execute this? <laughs> and one thing he talked about too was having that culture of trust. You know, it's just interesting that recently it was announced that Chick-fil-A is the sixth most trusted brand in the U.S., just behind Amazon, Google, PayPal, and, and yes, the Weather Channel too. <laughs> uh, you know, they have been a trusted brand here for some time. And Steve talked about that at the core, trust being so important. Let's listen in on that conversation. You've got to break out and be willing to try things you've never tried before. You've got to be willing to take risks. And it's hard when your mantra has been excellence. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because taking risk means sometimes falling short, sometimes failing, sometimes breaking things. And that can rub folks the wrong way when they've been kind of under this umbrella of excellence for so long. Now, it doesn't mean that excellence goes away. It just suddenly has to coexist Mm -hmm. with stimulate progress. And so that's where you need new talents, new people, folks who can solve problems, folks who think differently, and they have to be able to work together. So you've basically created this whole culture of project managers. Now you're bringing in innovators Mm. to layer on top of that. And then you're looking around the landscape going, okay, so how do we do this? One of my very best friends in the organization retired back in January. And we would laugh because of our relationship with him being the break. He's very deliberative, Hmm. very much a project manager type of mentality. And I'm an innovator, you know, and so he's the breaking on the gas. Mm -hmm. But it was through getting to know each other, getting to trust each other and know when he's going too slow that I can say, hey, dude, come on, we need to speed up. And he knows when I'm going too fast, when to slow me down. And those are the things that you can't prescribe. That just happens when you value people who are different than you are. You spend time with them and you begin to trust and understand that they're not trying to blow up your world and you're not trying to blow Mm. up theirs. Nick, I really like that analogy that Steve gives. Uh, He's talking about his friend, the project manager. The friend is the break as a project manager and Steve as the innovator is the gas. (laughs) And uh, you need both, right? You got to have both to make the car work properly. But if you apply both with equal pressure at the same time, you've got a mess on your hands. So... Again, it goes back to trust. You have to trust each other, trust the skill sets that you have, and project managers need to bring that to that side of the equation. You know, one of the things as we transition into another favorite episode of yours, I remember you mentioning Fukushima earlier. Yes, yes. That was just an amazing one. Again, a two-part episode, episodes 40 and 41, where we talk with Dr. Chuck Casto. He's uh, the nuclear safety and regulatory professional with 38 years of experience in the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. And one story from Chuck really impacted me. The point of the story was that great leaders bring calm to chaos, and and there was a lot of chaos with this disaster. I'll tell one story about Izawa. He was the control room operator. When the 
earthquake hit, they lost power in the plant, but they were used to a power loss and they have trained for that. That was normal. There were a lot of alarms, a lot of noise in control room, a lot of chaos going on, but they were controlling it. Then all of a sudden the chaos started to stop. Hmm. There are no more alarms. And they didn't realize because they're inside this big protected building that the tsunami had hit. But suddenly the alarms start going quiet. The controls start going dark. You no longer have control of the plant. You can't see control of the plant. And the operators in the control room, this is an unusual. We train for some of this to some extent, but this was well beyond what is normal training, what you would consider mm. normal training. People were panicked. People were screaming at each other in the control room about where are the control rods, where where's cooling at, cooling flow. So Azawa, I thought he did an interesting thing. The first thing he did when he realized that they had lost control of the plant was he actually stepped behind a, a beam. And he self-reflected. He took a second and he stood there where no one could see him. And he stood there and he said, okay, what's my heart rate doing? Are my palms wet? Am I under control? Do I have control of myself? Because if I don't have control of myself, right? We know from Covey, who's the hardest person to manage? (laughs) Yourself, right? So he took a few seconds in the middle, Mm -hmm. midst of chaos, just to make sure he was calm. What an excellent point. Yeah, And then he could go to his operators and say, now let's settle down. Ultimately, when you think about it, the control room was dark. They'd lost the lighting. You don't know what the radiation level is. You've lost your radiation reading. You don't know if it's these are lethal doses that you're being exposed to. Mm. You have no controls. There is no reason to stay in that control room. (laughs) No reason. And the operators, young operators, went to Izawa and said, boss, there is no reason to be here. The only thing that could happen here is we die from overexposure of radiation. We're ready to get out of here. But he had to keep them there. So here's this young leader, Izawa, who has his staff, his his team, wishing to evacuate, to leave. And he had to keep them there, even when there was no reason to stay. And he did a great job of it. He did a fantastic job of keeping them in the control room and basically telling them, this is our job. And the people outside that are being evacuated would expect us to do everything, even when there's nothing we can wow. do, mm-hmm. and we should stay. They all had tears in their eyes. Mm-hmm. He bowed to them and said, I, I, I need you to stay with me. Mm-hmm. And they stayed. Mm-hmm. So that mortality, it's called mortality salience in the literature, or death anxiety, is how your decision-making changes when you're faced with your own death, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter what your supervisor says. Right. Your natural instincts are going to take over, mm-hmm. right? And so for a leader to be able to overcome those natural instincts mm-hmm. and manage that person and lead that person, that's that's. I mean, incredible. that is that is leadership. Though. Absolutely. And, you know, panic is contagious. There is no question. But calm is contagious, too. Bill, that was some amazing stuff there from Dr. Chuck Casto. You know. The enormity of that project. It's overwhelming to think of the stress and the magnitude of that event, that catastrophe. That's one of the things that's encouraging to me is I feel like there's something valuable in every episode. We can all learn from every episode, from every angle, every uh, diverse opinion and experience, and even the diversity of projects that we've encountered. But lest our audience think that we're going to quit with 100 episodes. No, we're just getting started. We're going to move on from here, and I'm going to be passing the hosting baton on to Wendy Grounds. She is the actual producer 
of Manage This. So she knows all the ins and outs, and you're going to be able to hear from her, and you're going to love her voice. It's quite different than Nick's. First of all, she's female, and she's from South Africa. Uh Uh And uh, so, yeah, I think people will go, hey, that's not Nick. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely, definitely. Another thing I want to do is just express to our audience how much we appreciate them. It's one thing to record a podcast. It's quite different if people actually listen to it. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. for the first 100 episodes, many have joined us for the journey, and we thank you for that. And we hope that you will continue as we move on from here. Nick, at the end of our podcast in the past, you have been so kind to offer a gift to our guests, (laughs) and that gift is a mug. And I was going to give you a mug, but then Wendy had a better idea. So we'd like to present you with this gift of appreciation, something to help you remember your time on the microphone with us here at Manage This. Look at that, a crystal microphone. (laughs) That's right. I I love this. It's it's all these little prisms. It makes light all over the uh, the wall. I love this. Great. Well, thank you so much. And we, we just hope this will serve as a memory, a fond memory for you and all the project management knowledge that you picked up on through Manage This. Oh, thank you so much. So let me say thank you to all of our staff and to all of our listeners for continuing to make this podcast successful. For now, that's it for this episode of Manage This. We hope you'll keep tuning back in for future editions. And until next time, so long, keep calm and manage this.